0: about, uh, through, walk, walking through 1 Samuel, and we've been talking about David as he is in the caves. It's all started back, remember, Saul tried to kill David at a dinner party, and David flees. And so he ends up not knowing if Saul, in his rage and his anger, if this was a one-time deal, and so he and Jonathan in chapter 20 work out a sign where Jonathan lets David know that nope, things are, have gotten way well out of hand. And so David and Saul are sideways. David, from the moment that he flees from that dinner party until where we find him now, hiding in the caves, has been running for his life. Now you've got to remember, this is a young man. Some theologians think as young as 16, 17 years old. So after Jonathan warns David, David goes to the priest. Ahimelech hooks up with him there at the tabernacle. Ahimelech gives him some food to eat. And him and his guys are there, and he gives him Goliath's sword. And Saul, who couldn't be troubled to obey God and actually kill the people that he was commanded to take out, he goes and makes sure that his dude kills all of the high priests, kills all of their women, all of the children, all of their critters. He does exactly, in fact, the, the writer wants to make sure because he lists it out just like, Saul didn't do with the Philistines like he was commanded. He did to the anointed of God, the priests of God. So David is running. He's hiding in caves. He's, he's in such a bad situation that he ends up going and getting his family and moving them to Moab. Now remember when David and, and Goliath, that situation, that David's brothers were already, oh, you think you the man. And so now David, because he's gotten sideways with Saul, has to go to his family and say, Mom, Dad, brothers, grandkids, all of y'all need to flee for your lives because I got sideways with Saul. So you know that his family is not happy with it. So David goes and hides his family in Moab. David is going from cave to cave. He's living out in the wilderness. I was reading this week uh, an archaeological look and where David was in those caves, it's like just tens of of 20s and 30s square miles of nothing but desert and caves. And the only critters that they could have hunted were these like really skinny rabbits. So they're living, barely hanging on. The people he's surrounded with. The text says that he's surrounded with worthless men. Men who owed a bunch of money. And so here's David more or less by himself with these guys around him who are are not the most upstanding people. And he hasn't done anything wrong to cause this. He's trying to serve his God to the best of his ability. Saul is looking at David being blessed by God because David was obedient. And Saul is just angry. They said, David has his, Saul has his thousands, David has his ten thousands. This just infuriates Saul. And so he's going to make sure that this little upstart punk gets his due. David hasn't done anything wrong. And here's David hiding in cold, dark caves. David, in the middle of this, in the middle of running for his life, he goes to the Lord, he finds out that the Philistines have barricaded themselves around the city of Cala. And so he's like, God, should I go and defend this city? And God says, yes, go do it. And so he goes and defeats the Philistines, saves this city's life. Now you got to figure in David's mind... That he's thinking, this is how God's going to save me. This is how God's going to protect me. I just saved the people of this city. They're going to protect me. They're going to hang with me. David probably figured he had God's plan figured out. I don't know about you, but sometimes when those sort of things fall apart is when life just feels crushing. I remember when Ann and I and the kids left Turkey, we had a plan. And I just knew that was what God was going to do with us. We were going to go to Indonesia. We knew what team we were going to work with with the IMB. We had Skyped with them. We had met them. We had had interviewed with them. They said, oh, we would be excited to have you. Your family's going to fit in perfectly here because we've got a family. This is going to be awesome. We've got kids that match up. This is going to be great. I remember very well sitting in our study in Turkey when the person in Indonesia said, welcome to the Indonesia team, man. We're going to do mighty things for God. I knew that's what God was going to do. All that happened where we get kicked out of Turkey happens. We end up here in Gadsden with, with mom and dad. And, and it, we went around to churches all over Alabama and, 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 and Virginia and places. And, and we told them that our story was, hey, you know what? God has kicked us out, of, allowed us to be kicked out of Turkey. But you know what? God's faithful. We're going to go to Indonesia and still serve him, reach the Muslims in Indonesia. That was God's plan. I knew it was. I'm not in Indonesia right now just in case you hadn't put that together. And as God started closing the door, He didn't tell me anywhere in His word that that was His plan. I just knew that was what He was going to do. And as God started closing the door on that, it felt like God had abandoned me. Even when we were here, I remember very well sitting right back there in this sanctuary, just crying out to God saying, What are you doing? This doesn't make sense. My identity is a missionary. I'm not a pastor anymore. God, you've closed that door on my life. What you planted in me is the desire and the longing to tell other people about you who've never heard the story. I don't want to do this. And then the self-doubt. Here, God, I I quit my job. I, I sold everything that we owned. We got on a plane and went to a foreign country, and your response to that is to put me on the shelf? What have I done, God? What is called this? And you know that's exactly what David is going through. Because he just saved the people of Keilah. Saul comes marching down and he goes to God and you can hear it in his prayer. God, they're going to protect me, right? I can stay here. I finally found some place where I can light. And I can be safe. Maybe move my family here. And God says, no. They're faithless people. They're not going to protect you. If Saul comes outside of the gates of Keilah, they're going to turn you over to Saul and so back to the caves he goes in fact as I was studying this this week I got to thinking the time that David is in the caves is a much harder test than facing Goliath those moments, those flash moments of of sudden things when, when it comes up to a crescendo those are easy compared to the long grinding day after day after day after day where you just feel frustrated what are you doing God am I alone that there have been times when I've just cried out to God and said I can't take anymore I can't do this anymore God what are you doing and here David is. His very life is being ground down. He leaves after Kayla and he goes to the wilderness of En in front of Wild Goats Rocks. We talked about that last week. I love the name of that place. If I ever get a farm again, I'm going to call it Wild Goats Rocks. I'll have to buy some goats, but uh, that's okay we have a beautiful insight into exactly what David is thinking at this point because during this time in the caves, he writes a psalm, Psalm 57. And So if you want to turn with me, that's where we're going to park today as we close out our summer series on Samuel. We're going to look at exactly what was going on in David's mind as he was fleeing for his life in the caves. Father God, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this text. God, as we this week have watched the news of people who had their homes destroyed in Houston and they're starting to trickle back in, and the heartbreak of seeing people walk into their homes and everything they knew and loved is gone. And as we see that in the news, God, we see a storm bearing down on Florida. And people fleeing. People, everybody in here knows somebody who had to get in a car and drive north. And Lord, most of us in here have gone through storms. And some people right now are exhausted from the waves beating up against their heart. And so, God, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you that we can see in Psalm 57 how a godly man stands in the face of the storms of life. And God, I pray that we would look at this text, let it change us, let it teach us how to face these moments. And God, I pray that we would leave here changed and ready to face the storms. In Jesus' name, amen. I've I've really struggled this week with how exactly to structure this sermon. This text is just so rich and deep. We could literally park here for a few weeks. If you notice, the first three verses deal with nature... And how storms and and nature beats up on us. And by nature, it's the natural world. There are lots of people in this room that have them or a loved one been told, I'm sorry, the test came back. It's cancer. I'm sorry, we're going to have to try to put a stint in. I I don't know that this is going to work, but we're going to try this. Tornadoes that we see so often. That natural world where we just have no control over anything that's happening. That sense of helplessness. I remember after Katrina, I went in with some disaster relief folks. And before we could get into New Orleans, we, we stopped in Biloxi. And New Orleans was still closed, and we started doing mud out. And kind of the way you do mud out is if if the floods have only risen to below three and a half feet, then all you have to do is take the sheetrock out, the first seam, tear that out. You tear all the flooring out down to the subfloor. Sometimes you have to tear the subfloor out. Walk in the door. The very first thing you do when you walk in any house for mud out is you go find the fridge, and you duct tape that sucker closed. Because, oh, my gosh, if you ever open them after they've sat there a week or so, woo-wee, it ain't fun. So you duct tape it closed, and you drag that out to the curb. And we were in house, a house, la- a lady there in Mississippi. Um, we got the, all the appliances out. We're getting furniture out that's been destroyed, putting it on the curb. And we got to the point she had uh, Wayne's coating that was all around that bottom four feet, and it was just destroyed. It had gotten the water had come up, and it was buckled, and it was in terrible shape. And uh, this lady, probably 67, 68 years old, said, I, I can't. I can't, get, I can't let you tear that out. And we explained that, you know, well, that flood water's got, got all kinds of, uh, of, of stuff in it because it, uh, the wastewater mixing in with it and that it's, it's going to get moldy. There's no way to save this, ma'am. And she said, well, my, my husband, he passed away about three years ago and he put that in. And we saved and scraped and, and got the money to do that and he installed that himself. He'd come home from work every day after work and he put that in. I, I can't can't let you take it down and we tried to explain ma'am it's gone it's a waste and just the crushedness of her soul that this thing that her husband had done and she understood it was just stuff and she understood that it was not salvageable and she but it was just the fact that that was something that her husband who she loved who she had known since she was a little girl had done there's no uh, since she was a teenager there's no way that I can just throw that away and throw it on the curb And she would say, go ahead and do it and take it out. And we would start, stop, stop, I can't do it. And as I'm watching the news, I'm thinking about that, just that sense of helplessness that we have when the storms come, when the outside world comes crashing in, when the weather happens, when when there's disease, and we just feel like, there's nothing I can do here. So that first section is is God in His natural world. The second section is people. David talks about people running their mouth, people who are assaulting them. And I will say there are few things in life that can hurt us more than other people. I mean, if you think about it, in your life when you've been wounded the most, it's probably by someone that you cared for deeply. I've said before, if somebody I don't know comes up and just dog cusses me, it really doesn't affect me that much. I mean, the part of me that would get offended by that got cut out at Parasite a long time ago. I'd probably laugh at you. But and, mom and dad, my kids, people who love me, they can hurt me. Sometimes by saying just little bitty things. And we're all that way. The people that we care about can hurt us. David was called my son by Saul. David left his home to move in with this man, to serve him. And now he's chasing him down to hunt him. David says, am I a dog? Am I a flea that you just squish and throw away without nothing? Can you hear the pain in that? And so he breaks it, and you could break this text up in that way. I've chosen not to do that, so all that was for free. I'm going to divide the text up by the selas. So the first section, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. Notice that he starts out with crying out for mercy. See, one of the mistakes that we make when bad things happen to us, how we can become bitter is with the attitude that says, I don't deserve this. David is crying out for mercy because he knows he does. You see, the only thing that we deserve from the hand of God, the only thing we deserve is hell. Paul says that we are at enmity with God, which means we are at open warfare with God. Before you came to Christ, everything in you fought against God. I always... I am intrigued by the fact that people ask the question, why does good thing, bad things happen to good people? And that's just such a backwards question. And I love the response, the only good person that ever lived volunteered for the job. When Jesus was asked... Why did the tower fall on those people? Jesus said, do you think that they were worse off sinners than other people? No. Unless you repent, you're all going to likewise perish. David has the common sense here to realize that every breath I take is a gift from God. Every good thing that comes to me is a gift from God. I don't deserve goodness. And so if we walk through life saying, I deserve better than this, that's the wrong attitude. The attitude that we should have is every good thing, every perfect thing that comes to me is coming through God's mercy. I don't deserve that. David cries out, be merciful to me, be merciful to me. There's an understanding that David realizes that that the mercies of God is what we plead for and what we need. In Psalm 51, David said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I've watched false teachers say things like... When asked, well, will God let a, a Muslim who is faithful in his religion go to heaven? Or a Buddhist who is faithful to his religion go to heaven? Say something along the lines of, well... God knows their heart and if they're faithful, if they, if they, if they, God knows what's on in their heart and I think of my own wicked, evil heart and I think that's the last place that I want to be judged. I don't want God to judge me based on my heart because I know the depth of the wickedness that's in my heart. That when I see people succeed, my mind immediately goes to, well, I could have done that better. Am I alone in that? Am I the only guy here that's a jerk? Everybody's looking at me like, man, you are wicked. (laughs) well you're right and it's a matter of perception crying for mercy from God or having that expectation of good I watched a comedian the uh, the other day that was talking about he he had just broken into uh, uh, the scene in LA and and this guy was lost in fact at one point after my illustration, I had to cut it off because his language was so vulgar, but he was saying that when he first got to LA, he more or less lived on the street. And then he got a gig where he was doing a little job. And so he was able to afford an apartment. And he said, I loved my little apartment. I I would go to my apartment and I had a little TV there. And it was like a one bedroom with a kitchenette and it was mine. And I loved it. I had earned it. I can't, he said, I couldn't believe that I was getting paid to do what I love. And I had this little apartment. So he was doing a show, and he met Martin. I don't know if you remember Martin from the TV show, Mark Martin. I'm not trying to say Martin 50 times, but that's this guy's name. And I really don't know his last name, Martin. Lawrence, there you go. Man, okay, bad on you. You're watching bad stuff. Um, <laughs> so he met Martin on a set, and Martin said, come, come to my house. I want you I want to come over to my house. So he goes over to Martin's house. And Martin apparently lived in like a $50 million house at this time and uh that he said he he had a theater he said i don't even like popcorn but i went in and i popped me a big bag of popcorn and sat down and we watched a movie in his theater in his house in his house he had an indoor pool in his house he had a basketball court and they said they went in and shot hoops he's like this was in the guy's house he had a basketball court and he said it was awesome and I got in my car and I walked home in the same apartment that the day before I had loved so much, I walked in like, man, this place is a dump. <laughs> I ain't watching that movie on a TV. Pfft. What kind of junk is this? And that really struck me because that's, that's how we are, Right? We see that somebody, if you go buy the latest iPhone, you know, you get the iPhone 11.7S that's supposed to be the hottest, newest, greatest thing. And you're like, yeah, this is the bomb. And you're like, yes, look at this in the screen. And I can, oh, it's got a flash in the front. And oh my, this is the greatest phone ever. And then like a week later, you're watching TV. And next week, they're coming out with the iPhone 12. And you're like, oh, this is junk. Why am I even walking around with it? This is embarrassing to even be seen with. Don't we do that? And I I will say, we do it with cars. We do, I'm, guys, I'm not tattling on us, but they just came out with the Glock 19 Gen 5. I desperately need one of those. (laughs) Right? So our, David's perspective isn't, God, you owe me. You owe me better than around this cave, God. Don't you remember Goliath? Don't you remember me standing there saying so that all Israel will know that there's a God and he reigns. God, did you forget that? I'm your man, God. No, David starts out and says, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. When we came back from Turkey, we stayed in a parsonage. And I noticed in my own heart, we, uh, church was kind enough to say, hey, you can stay here for free. And when we first moved in, we we're like, oh my, this is awesome. It's greater than 1,600 square feet. It's got, it's got bathrooms that you, don't, that you can sit down in, which is a, not something you get in the rest of the world, not to get too explicit. But it was, we thought it was awesome. But then as time progressed, it, became, it just became nastier and nastier. Because we'd forgotten that it was the mercies of God that gave us anything. And so, in the midst of the storms, we've got to realize that God giving us breath is the real question. The question isn't the problem of pain. The question is the problem of joy. Why does God let anybody smile? We live in rebellion. Why does He give us happiness? Why does He let us look at the smile of a little newborn baby and get filled overflowing with joy? Why does God give us so much? And if we keep that perspective in the middle of the storms, we realize who He is, who we are, and what we deserve. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. You see, because He's enough. We sing, God, you're enough for us, but we don't believe it. God, you're enough for me so long as I have the air conditioning working in my house, and I got a boat, and I got a good car. You're enough for me so long as my kids are healthy. God, you're enough for me so long as I've got nice clothes to wear. And David's perspective was, you're enough. Now we come to this word, Selah, and I, I just want to, this is a freebie. Um, again, I got a lot of freebies today, so we're probably going to go long. I, I hope the crockpot's on low. Um, I, I've noticed that when people read the Psalms, oftentimes they get to that word, Selah, and they just skip it. And don't, please don't, if you're reading here, don't skip that. That's one of the most important words in the song. And what that word means is stop. Stop and think about what you just said. As Americans, there is nothing we hate more than silence. We can't deal with silence. I may be the only parent in America that's having to say, take those headphones off! I don't like silence. If I'm sitting in the car, I got the radio on. I don't even know what's playing, but the radio's on. And this word, Selah, means stop. Just think about this for a minute. In Psalm 46, it says, come, come. still and know that I am God when we were in Haiti a few weeks ago I don't know if you guys saw the post from Miss Susie but the little island above north of Haiti that we were in is, was was devastated Uh the, the missionaries that were here speaking Joel and Poppy that the water tanks that they used to give water to all of that community were blown off roofs blown off the buildings um, there was a little lady just down the street from where the mission was that when we were going door to door telling people about Jesus, she was asked, would you, be, would you like to, to, to follow Jesus? And she said, no. I've seen your Jesus, and I've seen Satan, and Satan's more powerful. I'm going to follow him. I wonder what she was thinking as that storm beat on the walls of her little shack. I wonder if she called out on Satan at that moment. There's something about the power of God in nature that makes us stop and say, wow, we are very small. Mars Hill Church was doing an apologetics video set. And so they were in L.A. They had rented some studio space. They had people who were college students that were self-professional professed atheists and they set them in front of a camera, got them to sign releases set them in front of a camera and the plan was we were going to ask them questions about why they're atheists, what had led them to that point and what they, they, they think about these particular apologetic methodologies while they were waiting for the interviews an earthquake hit LA and the ground started shaking and all those atheists hit the ground and cried out to God, save me ah! There's something about nature that reminds us that we aren't in control. So, when we get to those say we stop. So, David tells us, first of all, to be, that he needs God, he's calling on God to be merciful. And then the second thing that we see is him saying, God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amidst fiery beasts, the children of man. So the beast he's talking about are people whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, among the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Say, lach. people will hurt us people will run their mouths they will run you down and if your identity is found in what other people say about you you're going to be crushed under the weight of that you notice here that David keeps talking about what the people have done and then what God has done you see you are bought with a price I tell the youth, I've, I've used this analogy 500 times. I take, take out an iPhone and I say, it takes about $120 to, to make this iPhone. Parts and labor, it's about $120 with the cost uh, of whatever the, the latest Apple, uh, you know, three, uh, it was way past three, 11C is, it's about $120. But I can't go down to the T-Mobile store and say, all right, so I know it cost $120 to make, probably some shipping involved to get it here. i tell you what, I'll give you $200 that lets you make a little profit, and I'll give you $200 for this phone. And them go, sure. Would they do that? Absolutely not. They want their, how much is an iPhone right now? 800 bucks. They want their 800 Hondos. Or their Hondos. Give it here. Come on, give up the money. Hondos is still a cool thing to say, right? That's 100 No, guess not. Okay, so all the kids are going, I have no idea what you're talking about. That was the 90s. Uh, They want their $800. Why is that? That's because price and demand. We all learned this in high school. That's what the market will bear, right? Because what somebody's willing to pay for it is what its value is. Every person in here who's a believer, you were bought with a price. God loved you so much that He sent His only Son. You are of infinite value. You are of unbelievable worth. So your identity has to be bound up in that, not in what other people say. You can't live that way. You just can't. Because people will run their mouth. I mean, not in the church or anything, but people will run their mouth. <laughs> I've had so many stories come back to me about things that I supposedly did that I can't even figure out where it came from. It's like, that's not even to have any... I mean, if you're going to tell stories about me, I do enough bad stuff where you can find it. David... To be able to get through these storms, first he focuses on what he deserves from God and then he focuses on who he is in God and not on the people around him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, you know, it doesn't get any better. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercies of God, we do not lose heart. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also might be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work with us, in us, but life in you. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In James, the Bible tells us, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. To count it all joy. We don't count it all joy. Now, the reason why we don't count it all joy is we don't get what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians. Okay, so we have this gift of the gospel. And it, Paul says here, it's in an earthen vessel. It's in a jar of clay. So that the surpassing power of God might be of God and not of us, so that people will see that. So if I have a jar full of something, I don't celebrate the jar, Right? If I go buy a jar of peanut butter, I don't go, Man, Jeff has made an amazing jar. No, I stick my hand in there like everybody else and eat that peanut butter. Because <laughs> it's about what's inside, right? So with a jar that Paul is talking about, which would have been sealed on the top, and they would have been made to, to, with a kind of curved bottom so that they would all fit together in the hold of a ship, in that jar, you don't the stuff that's inside doesn't come out until it's broken. And then when it's broken, whatever's in it, whether it's wine, whether, whether it's honey, whatever it is, then can come out and can be used. We're the vessels, Paul is saying here. The reason why we're commanded to count it all joy, my brothers, when you go through various trials, is because it's in the breaking that the richness of the power can come out. We celebrate according to James, when those bad things happen because they, expo- not, they don't show us for who we really are because what we really are is not a good thing. But when we march through those times, when God is with us even though we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, it's at those moments that the richness of God can come out. And people can see that it's not of us. Jesus said, the world... Loves their friends. But I want you to love your enemies. Finally, David says, My heart is steadfast, my God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. In Colossians we read Paul commanding the church, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You realize that the song that we sing, it's the reason why I love the, when the choir sings these songs that can fill us up to overflowing. We need that. We need to have those songs in our hearts so that as we go through the day, we can call on the name of the Lord through song. I, I shared with you when I preached stone music that studies have been done about churches that when they faced persecution, they collapsed. And churches that when they faced persecution, they They grew. You realize we talk about how Justin Martyr said that the blood of the martyrs is the the seed of the church. That's not always true. In Somalia, for example, in one night, all the Christians that were known were killed, and all the rest of the Christians just disappeared. The church was destroyed overnight. Whereas in China, as they came in and tried to crush the church, the more they would persecute, the more the church would explode. And so there are people who did statistical studies and said, What's the difference? Why is it that this church collapses under the weight of, of persecution and this church grows? And the, one of the differences that became starkly clear was the church with a mature hymnology grew. Every time we see God doing amazing stuff in prisons, it's always preceded by people singing. Paul and Silas are in jail. What are they doing? They're singing. So when this choir is up here, they are preachers preaching the gospel to us and putting a song in our heart so that as we go through our life, when those bad things happen, we can cry out to God in song. There have been so many times when the crushing weight of circumstances has fallen on me. I remember so very well after I was fired from... from, uh, Randall Chapel, me sitting out by myself in my backyard with a fire pit, because all you men know that everything's better if you can burn something, so had a fire pit, just burning some sticks and stuff that was out there and I had no plan to do it, but all of a sudden I start getting filled to overflowing with a mighty fortress is our God and I'm walking around singing that and God just reached down and picked me up and said I got this I'm your mighty fortress, not those people Another times in my life, another song is the "It is well with my soul, when peace like a river." Man, when, it, when those times come, you need to have that music in your heart so it can come out. David closes this psalm out by saying, "I sing." And so thank you, thank you, thank you, choir, Amanda, Mark, because when you guys are up here, you're preparing us, you're equipping us for those crushing times, because we'll have a song in our heart that we can sing out to God, and God uses that in our life. So the three things, and I heard a preacher say one time, every person in here is either just come out of hard times, just going into hard times, or... I'm sorry to tell you, stand by. That's life. We're in a fallen world. And so when you hit those hard times, how do you survive in the midst of the storm? The first thing was that David cried out for mercy. He realized What God owed him and that every breath he took, every good thing around him was a gift from God. The second thing that we see in this text that David does is he remembered that his identity was in God, not in all the people around him. And the third thing that we see him doing in this psalm is having his heart filled with music so that he could cry out in song to the God that created him. Psalm 96, 1-4 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glories among the nations. His marvelous works among the people. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. If you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, you've never been saved, you can't sing that new song. If your identity isn't wrapped up in Him because you're a believer, you can't turn to Him in those dark days when those storms come crashing into your life. And so the first thing I would say as we come to a time of invitation is, if you don't know my Jesus, let me introduce you to Him. If you're a believer in this room... You can't put your identity in Christ if your Bible's covered in dust. What we do here on Sunday morning is not enough. You need to be feeding yourself in this word, and you need to be praying without ceasing to your God. And so, if you're a believer here, this altar is open to confess that time is sin and renew. Say, from now on, I'm going to do it. I told you last week I was going to put it up there. I put it up this morning. There's a read through the Bible and two-year plan I just put up on the, the, the face pages, pl- p- pages, pages. There's your way. You get up. There's a date. Read those verses. Read God's Word. Pray. Call out to Him on a daily basis. You need Him. And finally, if you're looking for a church home, you need to be surrounding yourself with other believers. You need a church family. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that you use this text today in our lives to equip us and prepare us for when those storms come bearing down on our soul. Whether they're literal storms, like we're seeing with Irma and Harvey, whether there are other things in our life from this physical realm where it's, it could be sickness, disease, Lord, whether it's financial storms that come into our life, or Lord, whether it's from people that we love that lie to us or stab us in the back, that I pray that this text would be a blueprint to prepare us and equip us so that we can be victorious in our walk with you. For these things we ask and pray, in Jesus' name, amen.